On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 134, Hoda Mostafa discusses living and teaching creativity. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so that we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest is currently an associate professor of practice and the associate director of the Center for Learning and Teaching at the American University in Cairo, Egypt. She was born and raised in Canada and later came to Egypt and ultimately completed her medical studies in Cairo, Egypt. After coming to UAC to teach scientific thinking in 2007, she joined as a faculty member in 2011. In this time, she's continued to develop her interest in and commitment to faculty development, educational technologies, and thinking skills in the classroom. She teaches scientific thinking and directed this multi-section course initiative from 2011 to 2015. She has also co-developed and continues to teach the course Creative Thinking and Problem Solving at a Freshman Level. As part of her role, she has actively contributed to the freshman program redesign pilot and implementation at UAC. She has a special interest in developing interdisciplinary courses for science and non-science majors. Welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed, Hoda. Thanks, Bonnie. It's great to be here. I know I was stumbling over your name a little bit, and I definitely respect and honor people's names. Could you pronounce your name so everyone knows the correct way to do it? Well, the Arabic pronunciation would be Huda Mustafa, but Huda is okay. Huda is okay. So thank you, thank you so much. I think we first met each other virtually through Maha, and I know I don't get her name very well either. But, <laughs> and she, I should, she teases me when I only use her first name because there are more than just one Maha in the world. Maha Bali had been on a couple of times, and she said you would be a great guest. And I just so much appreciate you being here. You have a story to tell today just about your own transitions throughout your teaching, and I'd love if we could start by you taking us way back. How did you get started in your career in higher ed? Well, my career kind of started by virtue of being in a system where when you uh, finish medical school, if you finish near the top of your class, you're offered a teaching position. You're not offered any training. You're not offered any kind of formal education on how to teach. You just go through a process of, okay, you did well. You're near the top of your class. You get a residency, and then you move into a lectureship, and you start teaching, (laughs) basically, which is, um, I think, will be familiar to a lot of people that start teaching sort of in that kind of fashion. But I, I really, really loved it. I love teaching medicine. I love teaching ophthalmology. It was a very interesting place to be because it was a public university. Uh, So we really had to be very uh, creative in how we we taught large groups of students with very limited uh, resources. That was my start, but I think I was a little bit frustrated in a sense 
that I was teaching in a very conventional institution where uh, there wasn't much space for creativity. You were teaching basically the same thing over and over and over again. Um, And there wasn't a lot of focus on the teaching part. It was more, um, there was a lot of memorization, a lot of didactic lecturing. There was something off for me. I was looking for something else. What's a memory that you have of that feeling of something being off of just maybe something that was a surprise as you started to get into it or just where you started to realize this is not working the way I think that it should? I think when I reflect back, it was on how I learned as a student. So in our university, there were huge numbers. So you did a lot of self-learning. You did a lot of uh, self-directed learning. You found learning wherever you could. So I'd get up at 6.30 in the morning to listen to a lecture for a professor who was offering these free sessions. And then I'd go and I'd borrow a book from uh, this professor. And then I'd get a book. I had my father's version of Grey's Anatomy that I would look at. And uh, so it was this, this, the way I was learning was putting bits and pieces together and driving my own learning. And then when I started teaching, I realized that students really didn't want that. They wanted me to tell them what to learn. They wanted me to spoon feed them. They wanted um, notes. They didn't want to go through the process of generating their own learning. They wanted to basically, you know, tell us what we need to do, tell us what we need to learn. Uh, And this is very common in, in places where memorization is the basis of the learning. You're not, there's no process involved. It's just, what's the product? What do I need to know? And this was, this was uncomfortable for me. Uh, because I was very curious as a, as a student and as a child, I, I had this this curiosity. I always wanted to to find out, you know, how things worked and why things were the way they were, and um, and it was just frustrating because, first of all, I don't know how to memorize things. <laughs> <laughs> I do not have a good memory, uh, so medical school was a horror for me, and I had to figure out ways to to learn things without relying too much on memorization. This was maybe part of of reflecting on how I thought learning should be that made me want to do something else. From what little bit I know about medicine too, and that's certainly not my discipline by any stretch of the imagination, but but that memorization is never going to take us far enough as physicians, as nurses, as those in the medical profession, because it isn't an input-output. That's not a just a, <laughs> a rational thing that that is going to be easy to arrive at problem solving or or diagnosing for people. And so I imagine that that also had to be something coming into play with your own pedagogy was that memorization isn't going to take them far enough. Even if you were great at memorizing, and even mm-hmm. if they were great at memorizing, that actually the the long game for that is something a little bit different. Am I am I accurate about my sense of that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's this process product kind of relationship. So, do you do you teach students how to think and how to document the process of how they came to a certain conclusion, or do you want them just to know the answer? Do you want them to be comfortable with more than one answer or more than one way of reaching an answer? Because in science and and in medicine, sometimes there is only one right answer. So there's there's all this debate about open-ended questions that are open to more than one interpretation, more than one answer. But in something like medicine, that may not be the case. But it's the process of how you reach that conclusion 
um, the documentation of the the thinking process. That's what's important, and that's much more challenging to to teach because it's experiential. You have to guide the student through this process of learning how to think, which is very challenging in societies like ours that highlight that one right answer, that success, that reaching the goal, and not really how the process works. I even think about as you're talking, I'm getting better at that. I always want to be, I'm never going to be there, but I'm getting better at that as a teacher. But when I encounter something new in my life that I am completely in an unfamiliar terrain, then I go back to thinking that there's right answers. I've been talking about on some recent episodes, a family member starting to experience some cognitive decline. And I'm just looking for the answer book, you know, <laughs> where, where do I get the right answer for this? Because surely someone's written it down. And, and this is, you know, as soon as I check off all the boxes, this is all going to be better. And it just is funny to look at myself as a learner as I start to go through different seasons of my own life. I mean, I can see how it can be uncomfortable also for, for people in general, not to have a right answer in front of them and mm-hmm. to have to be comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty. Uh, and, you know, this is one of the skills that we are trying to teach students. It's on the list of, you know, you know, 21st century skills or comfort with ambiguity. It's, it's very important for students to be okay with the sense that you don't have to get the right answer, but you need to be able to think in a way that could possibly generate the right kind of answer. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think this is, this is important to teach. And what was, a big contribution to my transition from teaching in a more didactic way, because that's the way I was teaching at the Faculty of Medicine. Uh, When I moved to experimenting in a different kind of course, this transition to teaching a course on thinking was a course on critical thinking, scientific thinking, reflecting on the process of science as a way to generate information and to generate knowledge and to generate, um, you know, theories to reflect on this process, it was it was totally alien to me. Mm. It was the first time I had ever thought about the, there's a, there's a system, there's a there's a process for learning, and you can teach people this process. Uh, so this was a this was like a aha moment for me where I sort of went into this course not knowing much and taught myself a lot. So I was was put in a situation where I had to teach uh, critical thinking. I had to teach some history of science. I had to teach a little bit about cosmology and the origins of the universe and the origins of life, which was basically biology and microbiology. It's it's in my field, but in a more big question kind of way, a big question kind of course. And I think it was a learning experience for me because when I think back on how I taught those first few semesters, I don't think I was very good at it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I got better as I as I uh, I think I got better as I as I progressed through the semester after semester and reflecting continuously on on what went right and what went wrong and a lot of mentorship. So I had a mentor and I had people who were sharing their experiences in the course. And it was a team talk course where everyone was sharing what they were doing. And I was lucky to be in a in a community of of learners that were developing this course continuously, but this was a very important part of my transition to being open to teaching something that you may not be an expert in, but to be able to teach process of thinking. We had an episode on developing critical thinking skills. And one of the things I'll link to that in the show notes, by the way, and our guest talked just about 
the, all of the work that she's done with different faculty and that most of the time, well, actually, I think she said all of the time, people don't have the same thing that they mean when they say, I want to develop critical thinking and just mm-hmm. how complex even that is to consider. And I'm going to find a book that was one of my first introductions to critical thinking that I'll link to in the show notes that was just so helpful to me to break it down into different compartments. I don't know if you have any that you really treasured along the way that helped you kind of get your head around it a little bit more, but you could feel free to share it now or it can email it over to me and I'll put it in the show notes too. All right. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about what life looks like now because I know it's much different than than back then. Well, um, now I'm, I'm teaching at the American University in Cairo and I'm teaching two thinking courses. I like to call them thinking courses. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, one of them is scientific thinking. And the other one is a course that I developed about four years ago, actually after a conversation with um, one of my mentors, where he was a, a judge at a um, science competition for young scientists. And he came back from that competition with the sense that, you know, our students in Egypt really don't know how to think creatively there's something missing. What is it that's missing in our students that we can teach them or that we can uh, introduce them to or or introduce some sort of an experience where they can learn about creativity? And for the first time at AUC, we had a course on creative thinking and problem solving. Uh, And this course was co-developed. We had a professor from the rhetoric department, theater, architecture, and we all got together and came up with this modular course that address the different aspects of creativity, attitudes to creativity, barriers to creativity, deliberate creativity as a uh, a teachable skill. We looked at different models. We looked at CPS, creative problem solving. We looked at De Bono's model. We looked at design thinking. And we put together this course that students experience creativity as a discipline, which is a way of teaching creativity in a more formal sense because that's that was our target to introduce students to creativity as a discipline and to kind of uh, introduce this mindset because when i ask students the first day they come in how many of you think you're creative how many of you think creativity is teachable how many of you think you can learn to be more creative and across the board our students i mean i'm talking about students from our um, in our university will say, you know, I'm not creative. I can't draw or I can't uh, play a musical instrument. And part of the course is building their creative confidence mm-hmm. uh, and introducing them to skills that they can practice and uh, and become more um, creative in the way they look at problems. And again, it's a, it's, a, it's a question of process. We want to document the process. We want them to be able to um, ex- reflect on the process of thinking and not necessarily come up with these you know, groundbreaking, um, new, innovative ideas, but the the process itself is what's important for us. Talk a little bit more about the interdisciplinary nature. I'm not sure I realized that, and it's probably just because of my own paradigm. I've only ever seen courses in creativity that were discipline specific. I'd love to hear mm-hmm. how you tackled, how do you create an assignment that might apply across multiple disciplines as an example? Well, this is a course that has a, an audience. It's targeted at freshman students, their first year at university. Some of them are declared in majors. Some of them are undeclared. But they each come with a different background and with a different kind of 
goal and how they want to move forward. Some of them want to be engineers, some of them want to be economists, some of them want to be business, go into business. But the the common the, the common thread that connects the the course is this reflection on um, creativity through learning prompts. So we'll we'll show them um, you know a video we'll have them read an article, um, sort of Tim Brown's article on creative confidence or positive attitudes for creativity. We'll give them these learning prompts or these inspiration prompts, and they'll reflect on their blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I co-teach this course actually with Mahabeli, and there are several sections running now of the course. But that's that's the central theme, uh, getting them to think and reflect on what creativity is, what kind of barriers do they have to their own creativity, looking at creativity as uh, a process of generating ideas that have a high rel- uh, high possibility of being better ideas than if they had thought about them in uh, a more linear or conventional way. They learn a lot about collaboration and the power of collaboration and cooperation. And they, they visit the different models. So we used to teach CPS and De Bono. Now we're looking at design thinking because it seems to be a more a generic way of looking at creativity. It's very accessible. So they're learning about empathizing with their user, defining problems, reframing problems, the power of ideation and brainstorming, the power of prototyping and iteration and, and uh, even prototyping ideas and testing ideas uh, on audiences and this is where they apply that to a game an educational game design module that Mahabali teaches and, and in, in that case they're they're applying what they've learned about the process of thinking creatively about a problem to an actual challenge okay so they do two or three mini challenges where they would give them a problem and they have to think about how they would solve that problem so this semester we did how would you deal with the problem of people taking hand baggage onto a plane, and then when the there's a problem with the plane and everybody has to evacuate, people stop and take their hand baggage. So how would you deal with that problem? How would you solve that problem by reframing it? We also talked about how we would uh, reduce food waste by changing our relationship with food, and they would look at that as a challenge. How would you design an educational game for students that had a particular learning objective. So they do these mini challenges and they practice the skills that we introduce to them through these inspiration prompts or through these learning prompts. And they come up with, I think for freshmen, they come up with some really good ideas. But what I think is the most powerful part of the course is the reflection Mm -hmm. because they're reflecting on their blogs sometimes twice a week and they're seeing what the rest of the class is thinking. And it's kind of like a uh, a big brain for the class. You can just sort of <laughs> you know, buzzing a little, you know, their ideas and they're picking up off each other and they're learning from each other. So that's, I think, one of the positive things about the course as well is the the element of reflection and blogging. When you introduce the first mini challenge, do you have the common sense of resistance that we get when we're asking people to change their cultural norms that say, I am the teacher and the source of all knowledge, and that's what they may be used to in their educational experience? Is that where you see resistance? Or are you able to release some of that earlier in the course, and by the time they get to the first challenge, they're equipped to recognize that they're not going to come to you for the answers to real challenging questions that they have? Yeah, I think that is a huge problem that 
students are waiting for you to either give them the right answer or validate their answers as being good or correct uh, or correct their mistakes and tell them how to make it better. What is nice about the teaching creativity through design thinking is because the process is iterative and failure is welcome. And this is a culture that we introduce very early in the course. They listen to Catherine Schutz's uh, TED talk on failure and how failure is a human right and you should embrace it. Uh, and they reflect on that. We talk a lot about failure as being something that they were raised to fear. Uh, and this is a cultural thing. It's parts ingrained in, in their schooling. And letting go of this fear of failure is not something that's going to happen in a few weeks during a course. But this shift in their mindset that someone tells them for maybe the first time in their educational careers that failure is a good thing and that I want you to fail and fail repeatedly until you come up with something that you will identify as being truly uh, your best work. Uh, so this is something that we introduce very early in the course through either reflecting on these inspirational prompts or these learning prompts or by um, just talking about it in class, having discussions about it and sharing experiences. And we share our own experiences, Naha and I, on our own failures as well. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about reflection. What's the process that you have them go through and how does this contribute to their learning about creativity? We do give them some sort of a, a guide to uh, a reflective blog post. Mm -hmm. So I'll give them some guideline questions. Uh, I'll show them examples of reflective posts. So Maha blogs frequently. So I'll show them a post from her blog. I'll show them blogs. I'll, re I'll repost on the class blog um, some reflections from previous classes. Uh, because I, I tend to find that students sometimes just need to see an example of something that not, it's not what I'm looking for. I won't tell them, you know, this is what you need to do. I'll say, this is an example of a student's reflective blog from last semester. And here's another one. And here's Maha blogging. And here's another person blogging. And, and then I'll give them some, some very loose guidelines. And then they practice. So by the end of the, the course, they will have gotten more adept at blogging. So to um, link into, so if part of the reflection is if you're reflecting on a TED Talk or an article that you're reading or a New York Times piece or whatever, how can you connect that to what we're talking about in class or a real life experience or something you may have read someplace else or something you learned in another course? So this ability to also connect to their context, their real life, mm -hmm. Uh, is, is I think, very important part of learning. I'm more and more I become convinced that relevance and, and meaning is so important for the freshmen that I teach. Um, they, they get engaged when, they, when it's meaningful to them. And the challenge is how do you make um, it meaningful? There are some topics, like in the other course I teach, you know, uh, we teach cosmology and the origins of life. And how do you connect that to something meaningful for an 18-year-old. Uh, and this is, it's challenging. You need to do that to get them into uh, learning more about, um, about concepts and ideas and, and even theory in something like science. That really is such the challenge. And 
I I certainly don't have any answers, but I always think about <laughs> one of the ways is to try to ignite their curiosity again. To because I you know I told you before we started recording, we I've got two small children, and it's infectious to be around them and just the kinds of curiosity that they have. And and I mean they ask so many questions every day that I can't answer because <laughs> I just don't I don't know about it yet. But it's I never want to stifle it. So how could we find out about whatever it is you're asking? And so many times our students come in and they've just been. It's it's been ingrained to not do that, to not bring that into the classroom. I believe it's still present within them, but it just is muted when they come into some of our educational environments. So it's so fun to just be constantly challenging ourselves in that way to how do we reignite their curiosity in all of this? I think that also a lot of students come in with these preconceived ideas about what education should be mm-hmm. and what the classroom should be. Uh, and to attempt to teach in, in a way that is that is different than the norm, especially with students that do come from the, the, the didactic, the conventional, memorization-based, uh, they struggle a lot. I mean, I, realistically speaking, it takes them a very long time to become comfortable with this idea that they can each come up with a different answer, and that's okay, uh, and this is how we're going to assess you and it's 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 a challenge for them. It takes some time. That's why we like to give them multiple opportunities to experience uh, these these challenges. So they do at least three in the first um, in the first six weeks or eight weeks of the course, and then they do a, a larger one near the end. But this um, introduction to learning through failure uh, is important for them to experience it while they're in a safe environment like university life. Because professional life may not be as forgiving. Uh, I can't tell them that, you know, you're going to go and work uh, at a big company and and your boss is going to say, hey, good for you, you failed, why don't you try again? (laughs) That's not realistic. But the learning that can happen in the classroom through failure and the reflection on what they've learned, I think it's cumulative. I think with time, maybe, I don't know, maybe they end up failing less than in a more in you know in a real world sense of failure so that they're they're prepared they're prepared they have the confidence to know uh, that it's okay to fail but they also can identify what failure is and and that it's not such a big deal so. <laughs> it goes back to also to resilience and grit and uh, there's a lot of talk about that as well in education yeah yeah it's so true I, what sounds like a wonderful class i'm ready to sign up <laughs> This is the point in the show where we each are going to give our recommendations. And at first, I thought that mine wasn't going to relate to today's topic, but I actually realized that it quite does. I'm going to link to in the show notes, a really graphically rich with lots of embedded media blog post called Top Presentation Slide Decks. And it is pretty much what you talked about as far as giving people examples of creative ways to approach one's PowerPoint slides or keynote or whatever tool it is that people use. And there are at least seven to 10 different decks that you can just scroll through and see what they've done with color and see what they've done with space and what they've done with just minimizing the text and and making sure that the images actually connect with us and what the designer is attempting to create. They're all very different. 
And something that I like about it is that they're transparent in terms of what it is that they have done to create the effects. And Mm -hmm. so many times when we look to, I have a book that I've recommended often called Slideology by Nancy Duarte. And she's been that inspiration for me many times. I'm sitting down getting ready to build a slide deck for a conference or for one of my classes or for a faculty presentation. And I can get inspiration. Oh, that color scheme is exactly the kind of tone I'm trying to set. Or look at how they used this fonts that were slightly askew or look at this, how they divided it up to make very transparent their sequencing in a particular topic. And anyway, I hope that people just enjoy going and getting some inspiration and maybe thinking a little bit more creativity, creatively about your slide decks for presentations you have down the road. So that's my recommendation and I'm going to pass it over to you to give. I can, I'm I'm already scrolling through them. It looks really interesting. Uh, Yeah. Going back to seeing seeing something really does uh, sometimes help you uh, visualize what you could possibly uh, do. Um, I guess I'm, I'm hoping that uh, in the future uh, that students consider our classrooms uh, safe places for learning and that they're, they're comfortable with reflecting and expressing themselves and, and making mistakes. Uh, it sounds very utopian in a sense that it's not very realistic, but I think that students do learn a lot by feeling that there's some sort of sense of forgiveness in the classroom and care. Uh, this is something also that I've recently become very uh, cognizant of, that uh, it really makes a difference when your students can see and sense and really understand that you really do care about their learning. And from a personal perspective, this is something that I think I lacked in my higher education, that I didn't really feel that many people cared about how I learned or what I learned. And I really had to be self-motivated and it was a struggle. So I hope that the newer generation of students don't need to struggle the way we struggled or I struggled. It's a personal story. Uh, And to embrace failure. I think that this is, uh, it's a cliche of sorts. I've seen the the students' eyes. Something changes in their in in their eyes when when you tell them, you know, please fail and try it, and we'll do it again, and until you get something that you are uh, proud of. Uh, and I think this is what I've really benefited from from transitioning, uh, moving to uh, where I'm teaching at a liberal arts university. That I'm teaching freshmen, I'm teaching students in their first year of university, and it's very inspiring. It's very rewarding, and I really love doing it. <laughs> well, it has been such a pleasure talking to you, and I have made lots of notes of things that that I'm going to link to, and if I can't find them, I'll email you on that. But I just want to thank you so much for investing your time in this community. I know you mentioned that you've listened to some of the shows too, and it's I can tell that as you're sharing because it's just fun as you've contributed so much to this ongoing conversation. Thank you so much for your time and your gifts. Thank you, Bonnie. It's been great talking to you. It was so wonderful to have this conversation with Hoda and to just discover all these ways we can think more about our own creativity and bringing that into our teaching. Thank you for the gift of this conversation. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm hoping that you will consider going to the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 134 and let us know any other resources you're aware of to help us bring more critical thinking and creativity into our own teaching. 
And if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly newsletter, that's something to think about doing because it's just a single email on a weekly basis where automatically all the links to the books and articles and TED Talks that were talked about on today's episode and every week's episode will come into your inbox along with an article that I've written about teaching or personal productivity. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And when you do, you'll get a book, an e-guide that will introduce 19 tools to help enhance your own personal productivity through technology and also some educational technology tools. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.